in leading those two songs, uh, becoming more like Jesus, more about Jesus, what I learned, what I know, and uh, Sweet Hour of Prayer, uh, Will is helping to prepare our minds for our lesson tonight, which is becoming more like Jesus, specifically in the matter of prayer, or as we announced in our, in our um, sermon title, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. So glad you're here tonight. Let me join with uh, Kevin in welcoming everyone. And uh, we're just delighted that you're present tonight for the purpose of studying God and the, spirit, the Word of God and the spiritual interest that uh, your presence indicates. Welcome to each one of you and to those that are visiting. You are our special guest. In the text we have on the screen in Luke 6 and verse 40, in the English Standard Translation, the text reads, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, when I was a youngster, I did a lot of memorization in the King James Translation. And uh, if you use the King James in this verse, it might refer to everyone when he is perfect will be like his master. And so you read that and you say, well, I, nobody's perfect. I know I'm sure not perfect. And so you think in terms of sinlessness. But that's not really what this passage is, is speaking of. And it is, it is correct to render it the idea of fully trained. It's the idea of maturation, growing that there's a developmental process that is taking place. And so the word disciple is found in the ESV. Some of you, I haven't really asked uh, Kevin or anyone what translations might be represented, but I wouldn't be surprised if some use the New American Standard, and it renders this text as a pupil. He is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, it doesn't necessarily take a long time to become a Christian. The marvel of the gospel is that God has made something so profound, so simple, that in a relatively short time, a person can be brought to the knowledge of the truth of what he needs to do to be saved. Consequently, in Acts chapter 2, some, after hearing that first gospel sermon, that same day, there were 3,000 that were baptized. And you might say, well, the, the, but those were devout Jews, and they had a good background. But you come to passages like Acts 16. What about the Philippian jailer in that Roman colony of Philippi, that, that pagan town? And he's the one that asked the question to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, you and your house. And the next verse says, that they spoke the word of the Lord to him. That's Acts 16, verse 30 and 31. Because that's how faith comes about. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But you keep reading, and the text says that he washed their stripes and was baptized. The same hour of the night, he and his household. And so it, it's, it's something that you don't have to go to weeks of catechism that in a relatively short time you can learn what you need to know and understand. Now, there are things you must know. But you can come to know that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scripture. You can know who Jesus is. You can understand that God is, 
that the scriptures are the word of God revealed by his spirit. And your situation as a sinner, and learn as we went into more detail on Sunday morning, what must I do to be saved, that can be done in a pretty short time. But the truth is that the Great Commission has two parts. When Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 19 to, his, to the apostles to go and teach the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's part one. Make disciples, baptize them. But then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, how long does that take? That part about teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and what that takes is the rest of your life. That's, that's that journey we're talking about at dinner tonight, where you continue to learn, and you continue to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Second Peter 3 and verse 18 points out. Now, when you're a kid, you can't wait to get out of school. Or if you're working on your degree in college, it's like, I, I can't wait till I get through this thing, and when I do that, I'll never take another course. And so the idea is we, we reach a point, in, unless somebody's a professional student, he, he might reach the point that he just he wants to be done with school, but there's a sense in which we have to view ourselves as students and pupils, disciples, learners the rest of our life. Now tonight I'm, I'm really going to be dealing specifically with prayer. I've already mentioned that. But it's really part of the picture of becoming in every way more and more like the Master. And that's really what it means to be a disciple. There are so many passages that, that speak to this. In, in Romans 8 and verse 29 you have the expression, conform to the image of God's Son. That is, those that he predestinated, he called. And, and the reason is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And the wording of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 is that we're beholding as in an image, as in a mirror, I mean, the image of the Lord. And we're being transferred or transformed into that same image from glory to glory. You know, God has made us reflective beings. We are mirroring beings. We become what we worship. What we reverence, we resemble. We were aware of this in a profound way, in a striking way, a memorable way, when Linda and I were young parents. We have three children. Our, our firstborn is Alicia. And she'd come in from school, from kindergarten. And unlike me, when I came in from school, I was done with school. Of course, I didn't go to kindergarten anyway. But she would come in, and she had the sweetest teacher in kindergarten. And with the sweetest voice, it was just so suitable. And so Alicia would come in, and she'd line up all of her dolls, all of her students would be lined up in her room. And she'd teach school. And she had such a sweet voice, just like Mrs. Gresham's voice, now today, boys and girls, we're going to be reading from whatever the book was. Now today, boys and girls, it will be show and tell. And it was always sweet, and it was always calm, and she just did this day after day. So kindergarten passed in the blink of an eye, looking back. And now it's first grade. She has a different teacher. 
But she still comes in, and she lines up her students in her room. They all have their places, and she closes the door. And, but Linda and I hear something very different now. It, and and, and the, the coming forth from that door, from that classroom, we, we heard this teacher saying, All right, you guys, sit down and shut up or I'm going to knock your heads off. So what was happening is in both cases, she was very much resembling her teacher. She was imitating her teacher. You see, that's the way God has made us. Turn with me in the Old Testament to Psalm 135. Psalm 135 is an interesting passage. What it does is to contrast the true God and his wonderful power with the false gods that were, that were unfortunately so worshipped widely and prevalently. But I drop on down. The whole psalm is wonderful. But in Psalm 135, verse 15, in contrast with the true God, verse 15 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. But now, one of the most amazing verses, though, is what follows. The text says in verse 18, Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see, there's the principle, we become what we worship. And so when the people worshiped idols, the idols had eyes but couldn't see. They had ears but couldn't hear. Mouths that didn't speak. No heart to understand. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Now you may recall those words are, are very similar there are several times in the Bible where you read that, but in the book of Isaiah itself, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah receives the prophetic call, and God says as, as he sees the seraphim, and as they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord that says, whom shall I send, who shall go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And he was cleansed, and he's given the charge to go. But God says, you go to a people that have eyes, but they won't see. They have ears, but they won't hear. They, they have a heart, but, but it won't understand. Just like we're reading here. But then you go back a couple of more chapters to the second chapter, and we see what the problem was. It says the whole land is full of idols. Israel had become what they worshipped. And that's always true for good or for bad. Ephesians 5 begins by saying in verse 1, to be imitators of God and walk as dear children. And so the more we reverence the Lord, the more we are looking at Him, the more we're studying Him, beholding His beauty, His traits, His characteristics, that's what we become. Conversely, the more one turns away from the Scriptures and turns away from the word turns away from the teaching of our Lord, the more he becomes like the world or error or other false things that he or she might worship. So as I say, so many passages have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He left us an example, 1 Peter 2 verse 21, that we should follow in his steps 
we should walk even as he walked in 1 John 2 and verse 6. But it is in particular in the, tonight in our study that we want to look at Jesus because as his own disciples said, they, they, they raised the question, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. The book of Luke is what we're going to largely be confining ourselves to in our study this evening. And one of the passages I'll be looking at is Luke chapter 11 in the course of our study, but I'm, I'm just saying that our, really our title, the thrust of the lesson, comes from the wording in Luke 11 and verse 1, that as Jesus was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. We'll be coming back to that passage in just a moment. You know, when I think about that, it's not that the disciples had never prayed before. But don't you know when they heard Jesus commune with his Father so intimately, when they heard Jesus and the things that he prayed for and how he prayed to God, don't you know there were times that they felt inadequate? Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples to pray. So that's really what we want to do this evening. Now I said we're, we're largely going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, and let me tell you my rationale for that. We have four Gospel records. We just have one Gospel. There's just one Gospel. But there are four Gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what you will find in Luke is that on the occasions that we're looking at tonight, almost all of them will have parallels, parallel passages. But it will be Luke that will bring out the point that at this event or on this occasion that we're talking about that Jesus was praying. That, that's, they all contribute something different, but that's something Luke contributes that will not be found in the others. That is the, uh, the inclusion of these details and this information about Jesus praying. For example, all four gospel records make reference to Jesus' baptism. They all do that. The synoptics do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know why they're called synoptics, don't you? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic literally means to see alike. Those are the ones that are parallel. John is not parallel for the most part. Uh, hardly ever is he parallel with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in this case, Matthew, Mark, and Luke plus John record Jesus' baptism. But if you turn with me to Luke chapter 3, it says in verse 21, that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Notice, while he prayed. And Luke is the only one that, that mentions that. Now when Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized of John, we would say in the very beginning that the purpose of his baptism is different than the purpose of our baptism. The Bible teaches that we are commanded to be baptized for the remission of sins. The Bible teaches that Jesus had no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So why did Jesus do that? Well, we let Jesus tell us that. Jesus told John, suffer it to be so. He said, to fulfill all righteousness. And furthermore, there are two kinds of people those who were baptized with John and were obedient, and those who were not. In Luke chapter 7, verse 29, 
the Bible refers to those who rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of John. Jesus was not in that category. He would not be among those who refused the counsel of God. He was compliant. I could also say very quickly that John, the evangelist John, records something about why Jesus was baptized that's not in the others, and that is he tells about John the Baptist, John the baptizer, saying, And I knew him not, but he who sent me to baptize said to me, Upon whomsoever you see the Spirit descending, this is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so God had revealed to John the baptizer that when you baptize someone and you see the Spirit descending upon him, that's the way you will know that's the Messiah. John goes on to say, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so it served that purpose too. But getting back to the point about prayer, here we see Jesus always in intimate conversation with God and fellowship with God throughout, you know, you, the words are inadequate, but if we say throughout eternity, endlessly, always having fellowship with God in eternity. But here he was now on earth, and he was in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here He is in the flesh, and at the point when He's baptized, we can visualize Jesus in the Jordan River, His hair still dripping wet, and He's praying to the Father. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Now think in terms of when a person today is scripturally baptized. When he comes to a realization of his sinfulness, of his lost condition, and he makes that good confession, and he has someone here, Kevin, or one of the brethren, or wherever he might be, but he has someone assist him to be baptized into Christ. It's a wonderful thing. If he wanted to, hair still dripping wet, starting right then, he could say, Our Father who art in heaven. You see, prayer is a spiritual blessing. And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. And if we want to have access to God in prayer, we must be in Christ where all spiritual blessings are. Starting from that time that you go to the water to be scripturally baptized, starting then you can be praying acceptably to the Father. But we're going to, as I say, confine ourselves to the Gospel of Luke as, as far as the events here are concerned. And as we, as we consider in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, there's a, a statement made. It's just one verse. But the statement is made in verse 16. It says, He often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now, if you're in the land of Israel, do, can you visualize what the wilderness looks like? This is Luke 5 and verse 16. There... It's hard to visualize it, maybe if you've not seen photos of it or, or been there. But here's what we're talking about. When you go into the wilderness in Israel, this is what it looks like. Now, if you're in North Alabama, where Linda and I reside, and you talk about wilderness, you might be thinking of the, of the Bankhead Forest. Susan would have known about the Bankhead Forest and all the trees up there. Well, that's wilderness if you're in North Alabama, but not if you're in Israel. This is what it looks like if you go in the wilderness in Israel. But you're less likely to be disturbed. And I learned something from Jesus there. Not that I have to go to that particular spot to pray. 
But think about what he's doing. He's leaving where he was, and he's on purpose going to another place where he won't be interrupted and where he can commune with God in prayer. I have to ask myself, and I wish you would as well, is prayer that important? That you would leave one place and go to another place and plan it so that you would have time, you would be secluded, you would not be interrupted, you would have time to pray. That's what Jesus did. And the wording is, he often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Here it's not talking about what he prayed about. It's just talking about the habitual practice of our Lord in prayer. But let's move on to another occasion. And that is found, and I'm turning the chapter, you can see we're just for your convenience taking these in order. So I turn to Luke chapter 6. And I look in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And the text says that he can, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And verse 13 says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. Jesus had many disciples. But from those many disciples, the text says, And from them he chose twelve, whom he named to be apostles. Many disciples, twelve apostles. And the names are given here in verse 14 and 15 and verse 16. The twelve apostles are named. But would you agree that this is a very important decision? Would you agree that there's a connection between verse 12 and verse 13? That in verse 12 when he's talking about, when, the, when Luke is recording by inspiration, that he spent all night in prayer. And then when it's morning, here's what he does. You don't think we're changing subjects. It would seem the more natural reading is that what he does in the morning is what he's been praying about all night. Because the time had come, you see, in his ministry to select these men that would be apostles. Have you ever thought about, and I, the, the question is rhetorical, I'm not saying you haven't, but have you thought about how much that depended upon the apostles doing their job? I mean, these were men. These were earthen vessels in whom the treasures of the gospel were deposited. These were inspired men that would go forth orally preaching the word, but putting it in written form, and when, when, we're, when we're determining today what is right, we go to the word of the apostles. What if they didn't do that, their job right? What if these men turned out not to be dependable? What was plan B if, if this didn't work? The scriptures are silent about any other plan. This was a very serious decision. And I'm not saying that's the first time Jesus prayed about it. But on this occasion, he spent all night in prayer, and then he chose the apostles. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's just a summary passage. I don't know how that went. I've wondered how that might have gone if, if he might have said, you know, I thought about Boaz. I thought about Boaz. He's got so much potential, but he's just not dependable. I, I said the other day I was going to meet at a certain place and, and teach the disciples and others were there. And he said he'd be there, but he didn't show up. So though he's got so much potential, I, th I think, dear Father, we should not use him. Well, then there's Peter. I know that Peter is always speaking too quickly sometimes before he thinks things through. But I see what he can become. I think we should include Peter. 
I, I don't know what it was like, but I, I know at the end of that night, the next morning, after praying all night to the Father, he appoints these men. But there's something else involved in that. Not only did he have to appoint men that he knew would be faithful and to do their work, he knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And without violating the free will that Judas would have, he was included in the number that the scripture might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be betrayed by one who had eaten bread out of the same dish with him, out of that intimate circle. See, that was, that was a matter of planning as well. The sovereignty of God did not negate the freedom of will that Judas had, and yet the Lord knew that including him in this number, the text says that, that he knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And as difficult as that was, that's included too. Now, having said that, what's the lesson? Obviously, we're not choosing apostles today. By the way, these men were not apostles just for the first century. You, you, have you ever had some friends that are Mormons to say, does your church have apostles? And they're expecting you to say, well, no. Well, our church does. But don't answer that question with the word no. Yes, you, you have apostles. Peter's your apostle, just like he was in the first century. Paul is your apostle. These men were not apostles for, just for the first century. They were apostles for the 21st century. As they are the, the, the Lord's apostles. But as I say, what, what's the application for that? Well, there are all kinds of situations in life. This, we've already said this was an important decision. This was a really important decision. But you have important decisions as well. I tell young people, the age of Travis and Will, you, you young folks, I, I tell people that are young that right now you're making some of the most important decisions in your life that are going to affect you for the rest of your life. There are a lot of things that, that a young person needs to be praying about as well as those that are older. Most people are going to marry. And it's really a good thing. That's an important decision. And it's really a good thing to take that to the Lord in prayer. All of us look back and we know that we've made mistakes. But I can remember, I've already re referenced those days at, at, uh, in Florida College that I had the opportunity a few times to come here to, to Cortez. During that time, uh, Linda and I had already been dating one another in high school. We had known each other since the, since the fifth grade, actually. But even though going to Florida College and there were a lot of very nice, godly girls, she and I continued to correspond. And as time went on, I was convinced she was the one. And I remember night after night, including in my prayers, I would say, I think that, that this is best. This is what I want. I think she's the one. But you know all things. If this isn't right, if this isn't the best choice, Give me the wisdom to see that. May your will be done. Well, here we are tonight. The Lord willing, June will make 46 years of marriage. I believe that prayer was answered. But I've told that story 
not in a boastful way. It's just that, you know, I'm glad I got that one right. That was one important decision I was praying for. But I've told that story to have people say to me, it never occurred to me before I got married that I should pray for that. And even among those that are Christians, to say, uh, I, I didn't think like that. That's a pretty important decision. And there are people I know that have, are having all kinds of marital problems. If they had taken it seriously before entering into that and prayed as they should, and I'm not trying to lay any burden of guilt on someone that's trying to do right and is the victim of circumstances. But so many times, unwise choices have been made that if we had been prayerful and studious from God's word, that could have been avoided. But there are other decisions. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be faced with, well, what kind of occupation shall I have? Is it going to be an occupation that you can support your family, which you must do, and at the same time seek first the kingdom of God? And where are you going to live? And if you have the opportunity to move somewhere else, should you do that or not? We have all kinds of decisions to make. Where, where should I go to college? Take it to the Lord in prayer. We want to become like Jesus when it comes to the matter of prayer. Well, let's, uh, let's travel a bit. Let's go up north to Caesarea Philippi. And we're turning, we're leaving chapter 6 now, and we're turning to chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is very brief here. In fact, I'm going to narrate mostly from Matthew chapter 16 about what happens here. But remember what I said earlier? You remember the time when, when Jesus is asking who do men say that I the Son of Man am and the answers were given and upon this rock I will build my church. You remember all of that. But Luke just really is brief in his summary of that but the reason we're including that is what it says in verse 18 because exclusively in Luke the text reads and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do men say that I am? And the text is going to continue. I just want to pause before we read further to point out Jesus is about to teach them some very, very important things. He's going to be talking about the establishment of his church, his, his, his kingdom. And again, Matthew will record, uh, record more about that. And here Luke does record how that Jesus said, um, in, in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And it's in Matthew's account that it will say, from that time, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must suffer and die. When you stack it up, these are some really important concepts that Jesus is going to, to be talking with them about. And I just have one point that I'm making, though. And that is, before Jesus taught them these very vital truths, he was praying. And we need to be praying before we teach. To be praying about our teaching. To be praying for receptivity in the hearts of those whom we are teaching. But let's consider for a moment, if, if you would, with me, how... It was in this area that the Bible talks about when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And what this is, this occurs during a time that, 
that people like uh, A.T. Robertson is, in his Harmony of the Gospels and those that harmonize the life of Christ, they look at this period as a period of Jesus trying to withdraw from the crowd. Sometimes it's called the retirement ministry. And he goes to great lengths to try to be alone, and usually it doesn't work. The feeding of the 5,000, John 6, happened at this time. Feeding of the 4,000, Mark chapter 8, happened at this time. So it, often the crowds, but this time, look how far north. Do you have trained eyes? Can you see this is the Sea of Galilee, and here's the upper Jordan, and here way up north is Caesarea Philippi. And it's in this area, finally, finally now Jesus is alone, but before doing the teaching, he's praying. And it's in the most unlikely place, because up here at Caesarea Philippi is the Grotto of Pan, where he was worshipped, where, where for many years human sacrifice, animal sacrifices to the false god had been made upon, as well as uh, it seems human sacrifices offered there. This is an artist's conception of what this place looked like, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus is in this vicinity where there's just one pagan uh, shrine after another. Do a close-up here of, this is uh, the temple of Caesar Augustus. There was imperial worship there. A close-up of some of the niches that are cut right into the rock there. See, those would have had idols there, standing there in the days of Jesus that people worshipped. And what we're doing, we're just looking at this, and we're turning a little bit to our right, and we're looking up, and we see the foundational ruins of just one temple after another, the Temple of Zeus, the Temple of Pan, and the Dancing Goats. And you just have one after another situation like that. And it is from here that the, one of the largest springs in the world gushes forth and becomes the Bonius River that downstream will merge with the Dan River as well as the Sinair River and will become the Upper Jordan and continue its flow. So Jesus is in this area, in this vicinity. When he asked his disciples, when he turned to them and said, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Some say John the Baptist some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commended Peter. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And if you're following along in Matthew, the text will tell you that it is from that time Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must suffer those many things, be delivered by the chief priest in, uh, in, unto the Gentiles, and be crucified, and the third day raised again. That's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of serious teaching. But remember our point what we started out with, Jesus was praying. The disciples joined him. Then that marvelous teaching took place. Six days later, Jesus took the disciples to another location. And um, apparently, depending on whether one is losing, using the inclusive count or, or not, uh, Luke is going to say in verse 28, eight days later, I think Matthew has, has six, but again, that will depend if you're counting part of a day as a day, and uh, you know how that works. 
But anyway, Jesus here takes three of the apostles. This is Luke six, Luke, Luke 9, I mean, verse 28. He takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter, John, and James, three apostles. And he went up on the mountain to pray. What's going to happen is the transfiguration will take place. But it is Luke in verse 29 that tells us, as he prayed, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, and were also indebted to Luke, who tells us what they talked about. Do you know we know what they talked about? Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here we are. By the way, there at Caesarea Philippi, the text just says he took them on the mountain to pray. Now where they were, you might could tell we were at the foothills of a mountain. We were at the foothills of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon. And uh, so where we were was down in this area here. But he took them to the top of the mountain. He took them to the mountain. And ordinarily, Jesus just looked ordinary. Isaiah had said, the 8th century B.C. prophet had foretold, When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He hath no form nor comeliness. And what Isaiah was saying is, it was not the physique of Jesus, his physical appearance, that would attract people to him. That would not be the drawing power. So he is not saying he was deformed. It's not saying he looked ugly. It's just there's nothing about his outward appearance that would be especially impressive or striking. But on this day, the glory of the deity that was hidden, the curtain was pulled back. And his face was shining brighter than the noonday sun. His clothes were glistening. His glory was seen. And Moses and Elijah. Elijah, one of two Old Testament characters that never died, appeared to him in glory. And they spoke to him about his decease. This is a wonderful passage. Because what you have here in Moses is not just Moses. In John 1 verse 17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses is the lawgiver. When Moses is there, the law is there. Elijah is not just Elijah. He's the epitome of what a prophet should be. When the Old Testament concluded in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6, the prophecy of the one to come who would be the forerunner of the Lord was couched in the words, Behold, I send Elijah. And of this Elijah that turned out to be John, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, among those born of women, there is not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. But Elijah was a prophet, and he was more than a prophet. He was the epitome of what a prophet should be. Are you thinking with me? What's standing in with Jesus is the law and the prophets. Now think of Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And they spoke of his coming. They spoke of his work. But they spoke of his death and his resurrection and his exaltation 
at the right hand of God. That's what these men are talking about. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, speaking to Jesus about his decease, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But before that wonderful conversation, Jesus was praying. Incidentally, the same word is used for transfiguration, applied to us in Romans chapter 12, when the text is there telling us that we are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed, same word as transfiguration, a change of form, transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we are to undergo a transfiguration. That's what we're talking about tonight, becoming more and more like Jesus. And prayer will play such a very important part in that. I've already indicated to you that we're going to be coming to Matthew chapter 11. And that is before teaching the Lord's Prayer, as it's sometimes called, or the model prayer, uh, that, that we're so familiar with. And I don't mean this is the only time Jesus taught about prayer. But on this occasion, he was praying, and the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. It's instructive to notice what Jesus says in verse 2. Again, Luke is a, is a bit briefer than in Matthew's account. But notice, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not just a want list of the things that we need. The way Jesus directs us, the way he starts off here, and it's not that you have to say these exact words, but this is, this is the model. You, you refer to this. But it's focused on God, our Father in heaven, His name, His kingdom. You know what the kingdom is? That's His reign, His rule. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help me to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think in heaven when God's will is expressed, if there's any back talk, any delay, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now, you have give us this day or day by day or daily bread. Well, that, that's obviously something physical and it pertains. And so it's right to pray for that. But even there, there's modesty. It's not give me riches and wealth. But day by day, our daily bread, those things that we need. The idea inherent in that is being content with what we have. And let me say this. If it's right to pray about your bread, it's right to pray for those things by which you earn your bread. You have trouble at work. There's a, something at the job. Pray about that. That's how you earn your daily bread. So that's involved in that. But, th but that's the only thing really you see here that's even in that category of what's physical because we continue, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's clearly a spiritual emphasis on God, His nature, His rule, and on our spiritual needs. And included in that, of course, is the daily bread. But see, we learn a lot by seeing how Jesus taught the disciples to pray here on that occasion. Well, I've just got a couple of more passages, and then the lesson will be yours. Quickly, I want to notice with you over in uh, Luke chapter 22. This takes us right on the eve of the Lord's uh, betrayal and crucifixion. He's and so the time is, the time is uh, drawing near. And here's what Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22 and verse 31 beginning. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. Jesus said in verse 32, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith should not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. Oh, Peter said, I'm, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And in my Bible, the way it's laid out, I don't even have to turn a page in this same opening. That's exactly what happened. Peter didn't know himself as well as he thought he did. And the Lord knows the hearts of all. But the point we see here is that Jesus was making supplication for Peter, intercession for him. And he was looking beyond the mistake that Peter would make and say, when you return, strengthen your brethren. And Peter sure did that. He not only preached to the lost, but he was strengthened his brethren. He does that in writing, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. What do I learn from this? Well, I, I, I learned that Jesus continues to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, He ever lives to make intercession on those that draw near to God through Him. He's our advocate with the Father, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. So what he does here for Peter, he continues to do for the people of God, and that's so comforting. But I also learned what I need to be doing. I need to be praying for my brethren. I need to be praying that even if they fall, that they will return. And that God will bless them and use them in their return to be productive and strengthen others as well. I come now to our last passage, and it's in the same chapter, really. That is, after those events that we just mentioned, that conversation, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives in verse 39 as he was accustomed. He's telling the disciples in verse 40 to pray. And in verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And so here Jesus is in verse 44, being in agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke is unique in that. Our Lord was so sorrowful, and there was such, such intense agony. But the thing that he's praying for here in the Garden of Gethsemane, with the sin of the world on his shoulders, so to speak, well, to use the language of Peter, he bore in his body our sins upon the tree, upon the cross. And Jesus is saying, if it's possible, if it's your will, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed that three times. And you see, as we've already said this week, there was no other way that God could be both just and our justifier, except through the blood of Jesus, our propitiation, as Romans chapter 3 points out. So what Jesus is praying for is not primarily that he doesn't have to die on the cross. That's, you know, if, if that were possible. But what he's really praying for is the doing of the will of God. And that's what we should pray for. That God's will be done and that God be glorified. And so tonight we've confined ourselves to the Gospel of Luke. And appealing to the Scripture, we've, we've essentially asked like his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And we've seen so many instances of the Lord's praying and how 
He left us an example, and, and there are lessons we can learn as, as we journey to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus tonight is calling. He's calling through the gospel. Then there may be someone tonight that needs to respond by obeying the gospel or in some public way if we can, if we can help you. We encourage you. Open your heart to him and obey at once as we stand and sing.